How Presidential Appointments Reveal Policy Goals and Elite Interests, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. President-elect Joe Biden is filling out his cabinet, selecting many nominees from the Obama administration and prizing experience and diversity. That is quite a contrast with President Trump, who left many positions unfilled and often appointed corporate leaders. But maybe the differences are not as stark as they first appear. This week, I talked to Christina Kinane of Yale University about her book in progress, Vacancy Politics. She finds that presidents can manage vacancies and use interim appointments to avoid Senate troubles and guide agencies toward more or less policymaking. She says Trump did stand out, but Biden will likely need to use similar tools. I also spoke with Tim Gill of the University of Tennessee about his article, The Persistence of the Power Elite. He finds that cabinet secretaries still mostly come from the corporate elite, and return to it afterwards. Even Democratic presidents are often drawing from a similar pool of elites, and Biden may not be so different. Kinane says there's a lot of appointments on the president's plate. The president is tasked with filling 1,200 Senate-confirmable positions throughout his term or her term. And many of these positions serve on independent commissions that have uh, specific limited tenures of either five or seven years. And so those will come vacant at some point during the four years that a president serves, but they do not necessarily come vacant at the beginning of the administration. Now, all of the presidential appointments that require Senate confirmation uh, that are in the 15 executive departments, these are you know departments of agriculture, health and human services, housing, urban development, and the, and the like, Each of those 15 executive departments have anywhere from 12 to hundreds of these positions. They cover U.S. ambassadors, they cover U.S. attorneys, U.S. marshals, and they cover cabinet secretaries, undersecretaries, assistant secretaries. So the ones that are within the executive departments, those ones typically at new administrations will request the resignations of the previous administration's appointees. So while they might not all come vacant with you know, directly on inauguration day, most of them will become vacant in the in the months following. And so that is is about you know, when we when we take out the U.S. attorneys and we when we take out the ambassadors and the marshals, which is pretty standard for these kinds of analyses. It's it's about three to four hundred positions that the president needs to fill in these Senate confirmable positions, with you know many many hundreds in the Department of, of defense to just, you know, just a few in departments like education, not a few, but you know, much less than hundreds in departments of education or health and human services. Gil looks at the cabinet nominees, finding high corporate ties then and now. The main takeaways from this paper, looking at the connection between corporate elites and presidential cabinets over the past 50 years, is indeed that most individuals are eventually connected with corporations at their upper Uh, levels, either before or after they're tapped to be in a uh, presidential cabinet. It is the case that more individuals go to the elite corporate sphere, as we talk about in the paper, uh, becoming, you know, a a member of a, a director on a board or a vice president of a corporation or a CEO, uh, more individuals go into that uh, elite corporate sphere after they're in a presidential cabinet, but still over 50% of individuals come from this sphere as well. So they might have been, you know, on the 
on the board of Walmart or on the board of uh, some sort of defense contractor. But over 70% of individuals actually go to this sphere after they're in a presidential cabinet. There are some positions that are more interlocked than others. I don't think that was all that surprising. So, you know, individuals that are tapped to be the Secretary of the Treasury or the Secretary of Commerce, many individuals come from corporate sphere. But what I think is perhaps quite interesting about um, positions and their relationship with the elite corporate sphere is that there are some uh, positions uh, where individuals, where there's a very high likelihood that they're going to go into the elite corporate sphere after um, they're in office, including um, secretaries of state, secretaries of energy, secretaries of defense. This is actually higher than secretaries of commerce and treasury. He draws on a long tradition of the sociology of elites. Zerite Mills, though, was situated, you know, he was at Columbia University and he was really the first kind of mainstream-ish sociologist that sort of began to uh, sort of criticize uh, the state of affairs in the U.S. and uh, political power in the U.S. and U.S. foreign policy abroad. And he had this idea that, you know, that there were elites in the country, that it wasn't just it wasn't the case that anyone could serve in power or anyone could become um, a corporate elite, but that you had to have a particular background and that there was this revolving door between corporations and politics and also the military, something that we don't really look at in this paper. But I think that you do see as well. And thereafter, you know, Sir Mills actually became a bit marginalized from the discipline, but he had an influence on later sociology. So we have awards in sociology in his honor and, and people learn about him in intro to sociology. And he kind of set in place a research program looking at elites and, and their connection, you know, different boards between one another, corporate uh, boards, and also the relationship between, you know, corporations and politics. And so there was a study in the 1970s by a guy, Peter Freytag, and he he looked at the same issue, looked at it from the late 1800s till the 1970s, whether or not, you know, you find a relationship between corporations and presidential cabinets, between the elite corporate sphere and the elite political sphere. And he found, you know, many of his findings were the same, you know, in line with my own findings. So I was teaching this paper in my political sociology courses, and I was always updating it on the fly with information from the Obama cabinet, but there was never anything systematic. Look to see if there was anything, and there was so I thought I could put this together, um, you know, just some simple tables and statistics. And I think folks have found it pretty interesting. Kinane looks at appointments from the perspective of the president. Where are the high capacity positions and do they want to expand or contract those agencies? The idea is, is that a, a position can have jurisdiction or responsibilities for policymaking activities. Some Positions have considerable numbers of those uh, of those jurisdictions and responsibilities. Cabinet secretaries, general counsels, many assistant secretaries are guiding bureaus and, and, and sub agencies within these large departments, or guiding the large departments themselves in the actions that they're taking to implement, enforce, adjudicate, regulate, and and, and engage in the work of government of governing. But then there are some positions that aren't so high capacity in this uh, in this policymaking world. They are focused on, say, public affairs. They're focused on communication or they're focused on research that doesn't actually offer policy recommendations. They might also be internally focused, which, of course, you know, I, I will grant you that 
the internal workings of each of these departments is important and ultimately contributes to policymaking actions. However, they themselves are not writing new regulations or engaging in enforcement activity. And so the conceptual innovation that you're, you're speaking to is this, this idea of, of combining both the capacity of the position itself to, to engage and, and, and change how uh, agencies are, are making policy or what actions they're taking. And then also what the president's priorities are for that agency. If the president is looking to have that agency increase its actions, increase its policymaking activity, or to decrease it, to contract it. Or if the president's simply looking to have it maintain the status quo, just, you know, you know, hold at what it is a more neutral, what I term neutral uh, priority, uh, not looking to increase what the agency is doing, but rather just continue with what it, what the status quo is. And so the combination of these two uh, is what creates this conception of, of position value and uh, that each position has the capacity to impact the actions of the agency and that the president is prioritizing changing the actions of those agencies, changing, uh, expanding or contracting what that agency is doing. And so it's not enough just to think about the policy outcome that the president wants, that the president would like to see or is prioritizing, you know, uh, a decreasing pollution in, in, in the air and the water or increasing the, the you know, our public transportation systems across the national stage, but rather looking at how agencies are doing that, what actions they are engaging in in order to do that. And, and that presidents are going to be prioritizing seeing those agencies do more in order to achieve those policy outcomes. They need to engage in more policy outputs. They need to engage in, in, in more policymaking activities or in less or to do less. She is studying when presidents leave positions open or avoid confirmation. Ultimately, my book examines how and why presidents choose to not use permanent Senate-confirmed appointees. Permanent, of course, is a relative term because all administrations themselves are not permanent. <laughs> so typically when we use the term permanent, we, we mean that they are Senate-confirmed. Um, and presidents, uh, you know, have are choosing these individuals to lead their administrations. And what the book looks to is to explain uh, under what circumstances they might choose to not use Senate-confirmed appointees. Um, and, and really to understand where this comes from, uh, I need to give a bit, of, a, a bit of background. And so who the president appoints to top leadership positions in the executive branch, particularly uh, what we would um, call the bureaucracy, matters considerably. Uh, it matters for the management of the federal government in its efforts to take action and make policies aimed at solving complex problems that impact the lives of nearly all Americans. So, you know, managing the federal government uh, as an institution uh, is is where these top leadership com uh, positions come into play. But they matter. But they also matter for Congress because members of Congress, Congress as an institution relies on the bureaucracy to implement and enforce the legislation that they successfully pass into law, particularly because Congress can't just snap its fingers and see whatever it passes, uh, you know, through both houses implemented immediately. And so, you know, it matters to have the uh, uh, to have the executive branch manage. But for the president, it matters um, since, you know, the president, he or she is the chief 
of the executive branch. It matters that that it's managed by individuals that he or she chooses. And so, you know, the president can campaign, can make Rose Garden announcements, can, you know, rather uh, pontificate uh, during their state of the unions about what their administrations are going to do and how they're going to do it. And they can do that until they're blue in the face. But really, um, you know, who manages their administrations is where the rubber meets the road. And in that vein, president's power to fill these very top level positions, their cabinet secretaries, assistant secretaries, general counsels, commissioners, administrators. These are the positions whose authority requires Senate confirmation, who have been designated by Congress to require Senate confirmation. Um, these positions are the president's most direct route to achieve their coveted policy agenda. And so we, political scientists, political observers alike, have largely assumed the presidents would look to fill those vacancies promptly by submitting a nominee for Senate confirmation. Um, and that hopefully that nominee would satisfy or at least not anchor enough senators to elicit their consent uh, to the appointment. And so we've largely been preoccupied with uh, whom the nominee is, their likelihood of confirmation. And, and, and in doing so, we've ignored the alternative routes that presidents can take. And specifically, we've considered the absence of a Senate confirmed appointee, which have, you know, in, in news headlines, in political science research, have been have been called vacancies. We've we've relegated them to be aberrations or asterisks, and so we're surprised when we find departments and agencies operating without a confirmed appointee at the helm. And and critically, these vacancies do not remain unfilled. Uh, interim appointees are strikingly common. Between 1996 and 2016, for example. Nearly 40% of the vacant Senate confirmable positions that were reported to the Government Accountability Office went without subsequent nominations. And 60% of those vacant positions were filled temporarily by interim appointees. And so in the past few years, the Trump administration has persistently left nearly a third of these positions without Senate confirmed appointees despite a Republican Senate majority that would seem eager to confirm his choices. And most of the headlines might lead us to believe that this is a new phenomenon, that this is surprisingly um, you know, uh, unique to the Trump administration, when in reality, it's not. And certainly, Trump, uh, the president, has made his disdain for the Senate confirmation process publicly known. His affinity for acting appointees you know, have, have a covered front page news. And so, you know, we would think that this is a that this is a new trend, but deliberate vacancies in agency appointment uh, in agency leadership are, are really nothing new. And neither are internal appointees. These actions that fill positions temporarily or in the Trump administration more permanently, they fill over half of vacant positions since the Carter administration. Canadian offers a new view of why presidents choose to make nominees and choose not to. The book project looks to answer questions that we haven't even asked, specifically, how do presidents use vacancies and why do presidents seek the Senate's advice and consent for certain positions and not others? And why do presidents choose to leave certain vacant positions empty while filling others with interim appointees? And so I, I you know, to answer this question, I develop a new theory of appointments that explicitly accounts for these unilateral choices to leave positions empty, or to appoint an interim. 
And, and in doing so, it corrects the status quo that senators face when they are choosing to confirm a nominee should one be submitted. And, and really what the, what the book, you know, the, the, the front half of the book is doing is setting up this new framework to incorporate the Senate's leverage to veto a nomination and the president's power to choose not to submit one in the first place. And really the only way to do that is to rely on, uh, on a conceptual innovation that I also introduce that, that, you know, since there is no nominee to examine when presidents choose to maintain empty positions, I needed to develop a new measure of the capacity of the positions themselves to advance priorities to either expand or contract the policymaking activities of an agency. And I, I call this their position value. And this position value is, is independent of a particular nominee or of an appointee. And it, in this framework, determines whether and when rational presidents are strategically going to forgo nominations and appointments and shifts our focus away from ideologically aligned nominees or nominees who are loyal or competent or you know, drawn from a certain you know, set of individuals, and rather to focus on the position, how the position can, can, can shift the, agent, the agency's policy output in a way that the president uh, prioritizes. And so from, you know, from this theory, I derive a series of expectations that, that I test and evaluate with two original data sets. The first comes from data I collected as a part of my dissertation work, which at the, you know, at the time was the most comprehensive data set on vacancies and appointments in political science. I developed it using several sources, uh, uh, but predominantly archived uh, annual editions of the government manual, which lists who is filling these positions that require Senate confirmation in each of the 15 executive departments, departments like agriculture, state, treasury, et cetera if they are serving in an acting capacity or if the position is left empty. And the data set covers fully the administrations from Carter to Obama. And using this data, the biggest finding reveals that, you know, these expectations that my theory sets out, there is some, there is some meat in them. Um, particularly, my theory sets out that uh, when presidents prioritize contracting the reach of an agency, that is decreasing the agency's policy output, decreasing the actions the agency is engaging in, the vacant positions are more likely to be left empty compared to when a president ex uh, prioritizes expanding the reach of an agency, seeing the agency engage in more policymaking activities. And in those cases, the theoretical framework uh, um, predicts that vacant positions are more likely to be filled with interim appointees. And these tests using this brand new data set show, and really the biggest finding reveals that as uh, anticipated, those vacant positions that have a high capacity of impacting uh, a policy output that, that are high capacity positions, that presidents who are looking to increase the, uh, the looking to expand the policy output of that agency are more likely to fill them with interim appointees than leave them empty. She says there's more variation than just across parties. There is this thought that Democrats always want to expand, and, and that's not necessarily the case particularly uh, because the way that I'm looking at this also to include a more neutral, a neutral category, meaning that they're just hoping they're just looking to maintain the status quo rather than to increase actions. And so, uh, you know, in a lot of cases, uh, we see, um, you know, uh, 
those those more neutral orientations that keep the department operating at the same level that it's been operating in, in years past. We still see, you know, uh, departments like uh, the Department of Defense see expansion both from Republicans and Democrats. The Department of Homeland Security, the same. Um, oftentimes, the Department of Veterans Affairs will shift around uh, in how presidents are looking uh, to see the actions of, of the VA, both Democrats and Republicans, uh, to expand or con- contract. And so that's actually one of the reasons why I've, I've concentrated on uh, less on the ideological or partisan identifications of, of policy outcome priorities, but rather looking at how these presidents are submitting their budgets to fund agency activities. And, uh, and so we see that, that this varies considerably. Gill also finds that party differences may be overblown. Democrats also draw from elite corporate positions. Between cabinets, I mean, you find that both Republicans and Democrats are heavily interlocked. That is, that they pull individuals from the elite corporate sphere into presidential cabinets, and that individuals that served in their administrations then went on to to serve in the elite corporate sphere. We do find that Republicans are only slightly more interlocked than Democrats. And this is what uh, previous research that looked at this same sort of issue uh, found as well, that Republicans are only just a bit more interlocked uh, than their Democratic counterparts. And we're talking about, you know, if just in looking at the totality, whether or not Democrats either came from the elite corporate sphere or went to the elite corporate sphere afterwards, we're just looking at a 5% difference, 78% versus uh, 83%. So there's, there's only a slight difference there. He defines these corporate roles broadly. In Freetag's work, the way that he looked at it was if somebody had a high-ranking position at a corporation, so if they were a board member, if they were a vice president, if they were a CEO, if they were had some sort of you know leadership position within a corporation, you know many folks in his study came from places like Ford and banks and things like this. And then also he had you know many politicians are lawyers as well, and so he also coded somebody as a corporate elite if they were a, a corporate lawyer. And there are these large corporate law firms that represent large corporations and all their sorts of battles and all the rest of it. So that's basically how this was coded. You know, was an individual, somebody that sat on, uh, you know, like Hillary Clinton, who was a on the board of directors for Walmart, or somebody like Alexander Haig, who, you know, was in the uh, Reagan administration, but then he went on, I think, to be on like AOL, American Online's board of directors, things like this. Or if they were a lawyer who worked for a large, once again, a um, law, a corporate law firm. And so what I did was I looked at obituaries many people have passed on. Bloomberg has a very nice database where you can look up individuals and see what their connections are with various corporations and this sort of a thing to to sort of code whether or not someone at some point, and many individuals, you know, they were on multiple, you know, served in many uh, corporations both before and after they were people like Rumsfeld, etc., before and after they were in office. But all these ties might matter to nominees' socialization. The Trump nominees offer good examples. We could talk about, you know, divisions within the elite corporate sphere. Are we talking about financial capital? Are we talking about folks coming from, you know, 
whether it be the automobile industry or the ph pharmaceutical industry or energy like Rex Tillerson or something like this. So, you know, my this analysis is very descriptive and this and it doesn't get into finer detail what sorts of corporations are individuals coming from. Nonetheless, they are coming from the upper echelons, the elite levels of corporations. And that, I think, tells us something. You know, are these individuals, I mean, I, you know, sociology, a large uh, piece of sociology is the influence of socialization, uh, where individuals are coming from. Not that that's determinative, but I think it is an important question to entertain if you are someone that works in the elite corporate sphere your whole life, working for an ExxonMobil or working for whether it was an American online or, or a bank, you know, whose interests do you have? You know, how were you socialized? Where do you come from? Who are you thinking about when you make decisions? Now, it, it is, it's true that Trump, I mean, as far as the Trump administration, we'll see, we'll have to see, wait and see, of course, where people go and all the rest of it. Um, but he did, in fact, tap more people for his presidential cabinet um, that came from the elite corporate sphere than any administration in the past um, 50 years. So over 70% of individuals came from that sphere. In some ways, I don't think that's all that surprising. I mean, George W. Bush and Obama as well had some of the, uh, also had very high levels of individuals from the corporate sphere in their cabinets um, too. Trump is a little bit higher, but in some respects, I mean, this is a guy who didn't come from politics. Um, he came from sort of a real estate all these sorts of endeavors with vodka and steak and all the rest of it. Um, so who does he know? Who does he mingle with? Well, he probably knows, you know, many of these individuals from the corporate sphere. Um, I, you know, personally, I don't know what, precisely what his relationship was with DeVos and Tillerson and, and others beforehand. Um, but the reality is, is that he does, uh, you know, he taps the CEO of ExxonMobil for Secretary of State, you know, an individual with really you know, his, 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 his work is not in diplomacy, really. I mean, of course, there was a case made that, oh, he, he deals with leaders from abroad in, in, in the, uh, in his, in his work as somebody for ExxonMobil, but as far as civil service, that's not there. So, I mean, I think that uh, we do see a little bit of a difference. I wouldn't call Trump necessarily an outlier because it's, you know, over 60%, close to 60% of Obama's appointees initially came from the elite corporate sphere. His are a little bit above 70%. So we do see it, uh, you know, a, a difference there, but not, I wouldn't call it um, uh, too far away from many other uh, sorts of corporations. I mean, and over the last 50 years, you know, individuals that are at one point or another, either before or after their time in office uh, coming from or going to the elite corporate sphere, you know, that's above 70%. And so throughout all the administrations, some are more higher than others. But I think you do see pretty high levels uh, across the board. Kinane also finds that Trump stood out for leaving more positions open but was mostly an acceleration of prior trends. Certainly, the landscape of American politics has changed considerably since January 20th, 2017. And really, um, you know, uh, you point to, the, to, to Michael Lewis's book at the beginning of the administration, and really the, the Trump administration got with um, generally unprecedented uh, levels of, of certain things that we had witnessed prior. But, the, but, but again, kind of, 
amplifying what we had seen. So, uh, you know, he was a Trump was a president that by his first August recess uh, had not submitted nominees for an unprecedented 60 percent of these top leadership positions. By comparison, President Obama, President George W. Bush and President Clinton had not submitted uh, 26 percent, 29 percent and 41 percent respectively. So Obama, 26 Bush 29 and Clinton 41 had not submitted that that percentage of, of nominees by their first August recess. And and you know data from the Government Accountability Office of these reported vacancies indicate that these past three administrations left anywhere from 10 to 70% of their vacancies each year either empty or filled with an interim appointee so not pursuing nominees. So again, not engaging in the formal nomination process is not new. It's just at a higher level at the at the you know start of the Trump administration. And then as the Trump administration you know continued on its way, you know although recent presidents have certainly used acting secretaries in their cabinets, you know, going all the way uh, you know, as back as as the federal government has been. Um, in place, there have been acting secretaries in government, but tr- Trump's acting secretaries have served longer on average. And there have been more of them, um, a lot more of them. And, and really in the, in the last two years, Trump has relied on interim appointees at a level that's considerably higher than any of his predecessors to date. Trump wanted contraction in some places and expansion in others and acted accordingly. There's a few examples where Trump's first 28 fiscal year 2018, his first budget that he submits has a, you know, a, a wide variety of cuts made to, to various departments, uh, particularly the Department of the Interior. His budget requested uh, a decrease of 12 percent or almost one point five billion dollars from the 2017 level of funding. And and he left for most of for for the first eighteen months of his administration left nearly half of the positions at Interior empty, and and so not only is the president prioritizing uh, you know a decrease in the activities that the agency is doing by decreasing that funding as I've, I've mentioned, but also he left uh, much of those positions empty. And in fact, the Department of the Interior was was stymied in a lot of places to be able to to engage in its policymaking activities and. Similarly, at the Department of Labor, uh, the president's budget requested a 21% decrease. And there he left for his first 18 months, 36 position, 36% of his leadership positions empty. And so again, seeing that, uh, that, that, that connection between, you know, decreasing the actions that the agency is doing and leaving those positions empty, which contrasts pretty, pretty considerably or, or, or rather, uh, to, to kind of continue that uh, with the Department of Labor to give an even uh, a more um, a specific example. The president, President Trump left the Assistant Secretary for Employment and Training vacant, uh, empty for, for um, over 18 months at the start of his administration. And one of his key priorities uh, was to decrease federal support for job training and employment services and shift that responsibility for funding those services to the states and localities and to employers. And so that match between leaving those positions empty and, and articulating those contraction priorities was pretty clear there. And, and that contrasts, you know, pretty starkly with his 
priorities with the Department of, Health, of, of Homeland Security, where he had considerably more interims. We've seen in, in recent years, uh, an act, the longest serving acting cabinet secretary, Chad Wolf, leading the Department of, of Homeland Security. And there, in, in for his first budget, he requested a 6.8% increase from the 27, uh, 2017 uh, 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 annualized level. And so that would, you know, increase funding uh, for programs to strengthen um, what, you know, he allocated or what he uh, emphasized for security for the borders and for integrity of the immigration system. And there we saw interim appointees leading the immigration and customs services and, and, and really having these acting leadership uh, uh, expand the activities that DHS were doing um, uh, throughout the Trump administration. And so that was connection there as well. What about Biden? Biden is now focusing on expertise after Trump did not. What the Trump administration has really highlighted is that having individuals who are not uh, up to speed with how the government operates and, and what their you know, respective agencies and departments do is a detriment to policymaking activities, to responsiveness of government. And particularly because the Biden administration is now shifting focus, I, I think there's an opportunity to really highlight that expertise and highlight that uh, that institutional knowledge and, and, and perhaps even allow the Biden administration to really hit the ground running, even if they're doing so at an in, you know, in an acting capacity, to really hit the ground running, given that they, that they have those connections with, uh, with the, you know, the, the millions of, of career civil servants that are going to be, you know, on the ground doing the things that they are guiding their agencies to do. And so, um, you know, have less of the of the Michael Lewis fifth risk kind of bumbling around of a new administration, at least from the nominees that have been offered, it, it seems like the Biden administration is really taking the act of governing seriously. And even without confirmation, Biden nominees could serve a long time. Obviously, the Senate has its constitutional prerogative of confirming a nominee. So Traditionally, we've we've we would be answering this question thinking about whether Biden's nominees are ideologically positioned to achieve a speedy confirmation. And in a in a world where we have you know a Republican Senate uh, that is that refuses to confirm nominees, the Federal Vacancies Reform Act actually has a, allows for interims to serve for a considerable amount of time. So interims that are filling vacancies at the start of an administration that you know occur right after inauguration can serve upwards of 720 days with you know the 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 circumstance being that after 300 days a nominee is submitted for senate confirmation and at that point the 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 time constraint is suspended. If the Senate does not move on that nominee, the, the, the time constraint is continuing to be suspended. And so what could happen? There's two plausible scenarios. The, the Senate can reject the nominee outright or not move on it or, you know, obviously confirm. So should the Senate confirm, you know, perhaps Biden gets uh, the, the nominee that he chooses uh, can you know, put in a permanent capacity. But if the Senate 
does not act, as it hasn't been acting on even Trump appointees, then these then then Biden's interims could serve for as long as the Senate does not act. And once the Senate does act, that clock restarts to 210 days until another nominee is submitted for Senate confirmation. And again, that nominee, should it not be acted on, suspends the time period until the Senate chooses to act. And so the Senate would need to reject outright the two rounds of nominees to shorten the length of time that an interim Biden appointee could serve to that 720 days. Otherwise, it's much longer. And so it could make it all the way until midterms with a full rack of, of interim leadership in the federal government, which I cannot imagine would be something that the Senate would be very excited to see. So the Senate's then pushed to either outright reject or confirm the, the Biden nominees. Gill says many nominees, including Biden's, may have corporate connections, even if that isn't their primary role. But even these connections could still have influence. Someone like Hillary Clinton is is kind of a, a good example of this. You know, she was on the board of directors for Walmart for a, a period of time. And, you know, there was some some um, investigative journal, some, you know, looking into her role there and how she didn't apparently, you know, stand up for the rights of workers and this sort of thing. You know, but do we really think about Hillary Clinton? Is that her sort of status is that her main sort of role as you know a board director for walmart i'm not really <laughs> i don't think that's how people view her as you know more as someone a senator and, and secretary of state and etc you know same thing with alexander haig in the uh reagan administration who went to i believe it was you know he was on some boards in the entertainment industry american online i want to say mgm and this guy who came from the military sphere then he's in the reagan administration um and then he goes and sits on these corporate boards. I mean, I, I yeah, I mean, I think that there is something subjective there, a question about, oh, how does somebody identify? Um, how do they, you know, how do they see themselves? But I think there is an objective, uh, I think there is some objective criteria there. I mean, why was Hillary Clinton on the board of Walmart? Why was Alexander Haig on the board of AOL? Um, my guess is they didn't bring him in there to organize workers or to push for, you know, better compensation for, you know, workers on the floor, probably something else. It was probably something in their worldview that they are at least committed to corporate capitalism, uh, that they're committed to profit making above all else. I mean, uh, that's that's what uh, the board's up to, you know, make some decisions, make ensure that a corporation is profitable. And there are a number of ways that to ensure that a corporation is profitable, that it is not helpful for workers, um, be it cutting jobs, whatever it might be, downsizing as you know, euphemistically. So uh, yeah, I, I think that it is important to recognize that somebody like Lloyd Austin, who spent a lot of time in the, uh, you know, over 40 years, um, in the military, but then he was uh, working with some defense contractors, you know, thinking through the complexity of individuals. I think that's important, but I also think there's an objective sort of situation going on there. You know, why is somebody again on a, on a, on a corporate board? Is it to, again, to assist workers or is it to assist the corporation in, in profit making? I think that Lloyd Austin's a perfect example of 
too, uh, of what C. Wright Mills talked about. I mean, he was talking about the revolving door between military corporations and politics. And I, and, and Lloyd Austin epitomizes that, you know, he's this top uh, military individual, then he's working with some defense contractors. And I think he was even on a board for a health care provider. I mean, that that's fascinating, right? Why, why, why is that going on? And then, and then now is being tapped for secretary of defense. And there's other individuals like this, Rumsfeld, Haig, so on and so forth. And so, yeah, I think uh, C. Wright Mills, you know, uh, thesis developed in the 1950s is, is remains uh, relevant in in the uh, present period. The increasing political role of companies may also mean more interlocks to come. It is true that more individuals, more cabinet individuals go to the corporate sphere than come from there. But you still have over 50% of individuals that are coming from uh, the corporate sphere. I think that that's probably true. You know, why would you want, you know, somebody that just served in office or who has mostly been in civil service their whole life? Uh, sitting on a corporate board, you know, when they come, when they were a former secretary of the interior or secretary of the state, I think it's about, you know, social capital. It's about connections. You know, if they're going to know people in the Senate, they're going to know people in Congress and, you know, they can probably get their lobbyists in contact with those individuals and, you know, whatever it is that they want in terms of legislation. I mean, there's a lot of work on, on lobbying, uh, both in political science and in, um, in sociology, that a lot of this has to do with, you know, social capital and lobbyists getting to know individuals and then being in the same places as them. And then, you know, Congress, Congress members there, who are they getting their information from if they're constantly surrounded by uh, particular lobbyists who are they're getting their research from? So, I mean, I think that the work, I, I, I think both dynamics are at work here. Kinane is also now moving back to look at specific internal nominees and when they're appointed. The more comprehensive data that I have put together over the past year. I've been working with an excellent uh, team of Yale undergraduate research assistants to construct a nearly continuous data set of who is filling all of these positions, if they're left empty, where they come from, if they're acting, and for how long. And the biggest findings of that data um, will give a, a deeper understanding of president's strategic evasion of Senate consent and how the Senate voluntarily relinquishes that consent by not confirming a nominee when an unconfirmed interim appointee is filling that position. And the findings will be able to speak to the evolution of vacancies, to how long positions are left empty before they're filled, if at all, the evolution of interim appointee tenures, and Uh, More importantly, the policy and performance implications of these choices. And so these data will capture when the interim appointee is a political appointee versus a career civil servant that's been elevated temporarily to these top leadership positions. And that distinction adds even more depth to our understanding of when presidents choose to appoint interims to to appoint the people who will guide the massive ships that are these these federal executive departments that are, you know, these individuals are determining the actions of governments. She's finding big differences between political and career interim appointments. I spent the summer conducting um, dozens of uh, interviews with past, uh, with previous acting officials spanning uh, administrations from Carter through uh, the Trump administration, a variety of departments, a variety of different levels of authority. And one thing that came out very clearly from these conversations is that there is a considerable difference between interim appointees who are political appointees 
in in their original position and then elevated to that acting position of 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 the of the vacant position to that acting capacity. And those that are career, you know, GS15, uh, civil servants, top level uh, career bureaucrats that are then elevated to fill those positions. And particularly what's important is that if the career GS15 is filling that position for a considerable amount of time, what ends up happening is that the rest of the administration and also other um, principal players on on, on, uh, Capitol Hill and even within their own uh, departments start to associate them as political appointees. And so if it's a short, if it's a short tenure of the interim uh, being a career person elevated, uh, we might expect that they bring a, a level of expertise and, and know-how and how the agency is functioning, able to really grease the wheels, as it were, and, and use their connections with the people that they've worked side by side with for their career versus a political appointee being sent in from the White House to fill that position might you know have a bit more trouble. But nonetheless, all of them have commented that they would act in the same way they would if they were confirmed or, or if they're acting. Next up for her is studying how this changes policymaking. So really what my, my research agenda is, is looking to, to dive into over the next few years is to really get a sense of who you know, is leading and who is not leading our, our government and what the implications of that are. So I have several projects that are getting off the ground and, and you know, most of these require a considerable amount of data collection because we haven't been paying attention to positions being left empty or filled with interim appointees. And so looking at the the implications for uh, loss of quorum at, at independent commissions and how Congress is able to actually engage in oversight of these commissions when there aren't people in those in those seats, when those seats are empty. And, and also looking at how, if those seats are filled by interims, how Congress is able to, to you know, kind of oversee and, and really uh, bring to task those individuals and if, they, if they're as responsive as confirmed appointees. Gill is now working on diversity in presidential cabinets and how that is connected to where they come from. I'm seeing the discussion on Biden, the Biden cabinet is, is mostly a talk about uh, diversity and uh, the inclusion of women, the inclusion of racial and ethnic minorities. He just nominated uh, Marsha Fudge, I saw yesterday, um, who's uh, uh, from Cleveland, where I'm originally from. So that, that was nice to see. And so I know there's a lot of talk there about uh, women in racial and ethnic minorities. So I'm actually working with a grad student. I'm working with two graduate students right now. I was... I switched universities. Uh, I was at UNCW, but I had a graduate student there who was, we were looking at the inclusion of women and racial and ethnic minorities in uh, presidential cabinets, and then sort of putting together a literature, literature review and looking at uh, previous work. And then I have a graduate student right now this month over the break who's going to look more, try to put together, you know, get sort of some numbers going in terms of women and racial and ethnic minorities. And then thinking about, you know, where, where do they come from? Where do women Women, where do racial and ethnic minorities come from? Are they are they coming from an elite corporate background or not? And um, do we see and many of the similar questions? Do we see any sort of trends over time? Do we see any sort of relationship with particular positions, etc.? So uh, I might have another. I'm hoping to have another small piece come out looking at um, the kind of power elite and 
and women and racial and ethnic minorities and sort of class background, if, if you will. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Christina Kinane and Tim Gill for joining me. Please check out The Persistence of the Power Elite and Vacancy Politics and then listen in next time.